1: All right, Craig, thank you. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2024. I'm Dave Congleton. In about an hour, we have the Slow County Physician of the Year coming in, Dr. Phil Kissel. Guy's extraordinary. A lot to talk about with the good doctor. This hour is pretty fascinating, too. I love this show today. How long has it been since we've heard from former county supervisor David Blakely? Well, the focus this hour is not on David, although it easily could be. We're going to talk about his dad. Everett Blakely why are we doing that because starting January 26th Apple TV is going to do a new uh, miniseries called Masters of the Air produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and one of the people that is portrayed in this movie series is Everett Blakely why am I talking here's David
2: David how are you Dave, thanks. I'm doing good. And you and uh, Dave, a little bouquet your way. Thanks so much for your 32 years of service here and uh, the information you've been providing to the community. Thank, thank you. you.
1: Well, thank you. It's very kind of you. You've, you've been with me since the early days. <laughs> yeah,
2: I have. When did you find out about Masters of the Air? About oh, this project? Probably about two years ago It uh, started surfacing. I have a, an older brother who's been uh, very active in the 100th Bomb Group Foundation. And uh, writes a number of articles for publications, and uh, he has been following it very closely, keeping me informed and it's it's going to be a remarkable thing it's a very very important uh, event in our family's history and uh, give us an overview of the series what's the show about okay um Well, if you saw Band of Brothers in the Pacific, you know that uh, the Tom, uh, Hank, Steven Spielberg crew, Playtone is their production company, they're telling a story. It's not a documentary, and it's not about my father. My father is simply a supporting character in this series uh... but it's gonna focus around what we call the two Buckies and their friendship and their relationship and the two Buckies were uh... bucky Clevin and bucky egan who went through training and came up through uh... all of it uh... to their first missions uh... during world war two in nineteen forty three and it's gonna be a story about their relationship and because they were in the same squadron as my father um And because my father's navigator wrote a very important uh, bomber book of World War II called A Wing and a Prayer, a fellow by the name of Harry Crosby, um, my father is going to be uh, kind of a supporting character. My brother, who went to the premiere of A Wing and a Prayer uh, last week, saw the first episode, was very proud to tell me that the very first speaking line of the show was my dad. Wow. So that was pretty exciting. But my dad's not the star. Yeah. It's the, the guy that was the star of the recent movie Elvis is the star, and uh, Dave's scanning his brain, what yeah. was that guy's name, yeah. and I should know, be able to spit that I'm out looking in at a Craig. second.
1: Craig knows, Craig knows, I uh, know Craig uh, knows. The last name
2: is Butler? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Butler, Butler. Uh, yeah, and his okay. first name is Mr. Butler. No, uh, but <laughs> I anyway, saw the trailer. He, looks pretty yeah, good. Yeah, he's the main character, and he represents uh, Bucky Clevin. Bucky Clevin will get shot down on uh, the mission on October eighth, nineteen forty three, to Bremen, and become a prisoner of war. And his best friend, Bucky Egan. Who was the squadron commander of my father's squadron, the 418th Squadron of the 100th Bomb Group? We'll get into that in just a second. Yeah. Uh, wanted to avenge his best friend's loss. Austin Butler. Yeah, Austin Butler. So he, uh, on the next day, a uh, mission to Munster. Um, he was also shot down, and they both ended up in prisoner of war camps, and so there's going to be part of the series is going to be about their time in the prisoner of war camp. And then throughout this, because the squadron had 12 planes, the 418th. The 100th Bomb Group had four squadrons, and so the bloody 100th is the bomb group. And the 418th Squadron, my father's squadron with 12 planes, uh, had Bucky Egan and Bucky Clevin uh, as pilots in uh, that squadron. So that's why uh, my father's going to be in the show. The other reason is that um, Harry Crosby, who wrote the book of Wing and a Prayer, uh, was my father's navigator. Huh. And so because he was my father's navigator, a lot of the experiences that Harry Crosby had were in the plane with my dad. So Harry Crosby is a major character. And so if he's a major character and he's in the plane with my father, my father is going to be uh, a character that's also going to be – fairly important in the series
1: so is the only way to see masters of the year is on Apple TV is that, that the
2: only venue that's the correct that's uh, they put up the money and it was I hear the most uh, expensive miniseries in history uh, they put up the money and that's why it's going to be on Apple TV the other series uh, debuted on HBO. Uh, HBO did not pick up this one. And so, yeah, subscribe to Apple TV. Uh, There's a lot of other really good things on Apple TV, and this is going to be one of them.
1: If money's tight, though, you can do what I have been known to do for some time. You just subscribe for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you don't renew your subscription.
2: Well, the problem with that, Dave, is they're Uh going to release one episode a week, and it's nine episodes. Uh Uh-oh. So two episodes will come out. There'll be two episodes on uh, next Friday, and uh, then it'll be one episode a week after that. Um, The other way to do it, Dave, is find a friend that's got Apple TV and go over to their house and watch it.
1: Your father lived well into his uh, 80s. So how much did he talk about his World War II experience to the Blakely family sitting around the table?
2: Uh, zero to none. Uh, very little. And I think this is typical. I mean, everybody yeah. that I talk to who had a parent that was in World War II or any war, Vietnam, Korea, any war, are generally very reluctant to talk about those experiences. And it's very understandable. I think war is an awful thing. Yep. And when you're in those life-and-death situations, you do things that you would not normally do, and I think that there's memories and thoughts and experiences that these men and women had that they just would rather push to the back of their brains and not relive. Um, You know, I regret now that I didn't pry a little bit more into uh, some things about my father, And I've been trying to, my brother, my brother Jim and I have been working uh, a lot on trying to get a lot of information on what was going on. As a matter of fact, this summer I spent four days back in Montgomery, Alabama, at the uh, Air Force Historical Research Center, just going through their archives of the 100th Bomb Group. I've been trying to find out how the missions my father flew. Harry Crosby in his book talks about 18 of the missions, so we were able to... uh, know that he did 18 at the time my father was in he was one of the first bomber pilots to go over to europe
1: well the other thing if i can jump in here that really impressed me reading his bio today he enlisted
2: before pearl harbor that's correct that's why he i think became a pilot i thought that was impressive and he trained down in santa maria at hancock field by coincidence he grew up in seattle um, and um did his first flying in a stearman biplane down at hancock field uh, and then up to Moffat Field, and then World War II breaks out with Pearl Harbor. Well, they
1: had to know the the clouds of war, whatever was, was gathering. He had to know the risk, and he still went in. That's really impressive.
2: Well, you're 21, 22 years old, Dave, you know, and uh, this was the era. Think about what was going on. With airplanes and such, back during the early 1940s, we came out of World War One. They were flying biplanes, you know, the Red Baron and those kind of things. Spads, uh, airplanes were, you know, going maybe 100 miles an hour. They carried one bomb and they were shooting pistols out of the gu- <laughs> out of the airplanes to to attack. And they were mostly reconnaissance. Um, and then coming up, the development of the airplanes took giant strides. Uh, we started to, to see different kinds of fighter airplanes, and it culminated with the B-17, the Flying Fortress. And there's a whole steer- story behind the development of the B-17 and why it came about. And another great book, if you're interested in how that happened, is a book written by one of my favorite writers, Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. called Bomber Mafia. Uh, At the Air Corps Training School in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a big controversy back in the early 1940s, late 1930s as to whether the development and the money that was limited was going to be spent on developing a pursuit airplane or a fighter or being used to develop a bomber. And so, among the thinkers and the planners in the Army Air Corps at the time, because the Air Force actually didn't exist as a separate entity until after World War Two, in the Army Air Corps, there was a big debate on how what we were going to uh, emphasize, and the folks that thought the bomber was going to be the way to go won out and this actually proved to be kind of a problem later in the war because The pursuit or the fighter aircraft development was retarded, the bomber development was accelerated, and when the bomber was actually put into use, they found out that they really needed the fighter escorts Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. go to the targets, and it wasn't until the P-51 Mustang came in at the end of 1943 uh, that they did have the escorts all the way to the target. So the losses were horrific. Uh, In 1943, I mean, you had a less than 50% chance of survival if you Mm -hmm. were on an airplane. Uh, The B-17s had a crew of 10 people. One airplane goes down, 10 people go down. Go down. Um, And uh, the losses were horrific. um, And my father was very lucky to make it to the 18th mission. His 18th mission, he received the Silver Star for. Didn't he shoot? uh, He had the record for most enemy planes shot down. His plane. And it's not my dad. I got to keep reminding folks that my father was just the pilot. It took the ground crew uh, to keep the plane up in the air to make sure it mechanically ran good. It took The 10 people that were on the the plane. He was the pilot. He was the pilot. But, (laughs) Dave, it really was a group effort. And those pilots that were successful understood that it wasn't all about them.
1: All right. Take a break. We'll come back and chat more with David Blakely, previewing the upcoming Apple TV series Masters of the Air, which uh, features a character based on his dad, Everett Blakely. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio. This is the Dave Congleton Show. Always your hometown radio talk show. Former County Supervisor David Blakely is my guest. We're talking about his dad, the late Everett Blakely, who is uh, a character in the brand new Apple TV series Masters of the Year, produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. Uh, when does it uh, premiere? January 26th. There we go, January 26th. Uh, here's Mike Burrell. Mike. How are you doing,
0: Dave? We're good, Mike. And Mike,
2: great. Great, great I thoughts it, on babe. Martin
0: Luther.
2: Great thoughts on Martin Luther King there, Mike. A, Thank you.
0: I want to comment about uh, what I read about your dad. Yeah, I read those books where he's he's uh, really talked about in the book, and I remember one one section in there where they talk about Everett Blakely, and they said that this guy was the consummate B seventeen pilot, and they said that he could do something that most of the other pilots could not do, and their crews loved flying with him because he could concentrate on the formations that they were in and just focus on the buffeting and the shells going off and all the air and and uh, the turbulence that they had to go through and hold formation, which was huge. Because if they didn't hold formation, they could get shot down or they'd cause accidents and all kinds of things. And I thought that was a huge compliment because I imagine just driving on the freeway, that can be hairy, and I can't imagine going you know, 280 miles an hour, whatever they were flying at and trying to stay in formation so they could cover each other. And uh, that was a huge compliment. So I thought I'd just throw that in.
2: Let's hear from David. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, they uh, they did, I believe, they loved my dad. And they did love him because their life was on the line, and they didn't want some, you know, uh, wild and crazy guy out there flying the plane. The quote that I remember in Harry Crosby's book is they said, my dad was the kind of guy that dotted his I's and crossed his T's. So um, if if your life is in somebody else's hands, that's the guy that I want sitting at the wheel of the airplane. And they were going about 220 miles an hour, 26,000 feet in an airplane that was not pressurized. So they had three main enemies during the war. One enemy was the German Luftwaffe. The second enemy was the German flat guns and the third enemy was the cold. If you can imagine how cold it would be at 26,000 feet in a non-pressurized cabin. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh the cabin walls were not much thicker than a beer can, you know. It's uh <laughs> seriously <laughs> yeah. and um it got cold and frostbite was a major problem uh Daniel Mil- Donald Miller in his book "Masses of the Air spends a whole chapter talking about the problems of the cold uh, Lucky Luckadoo in his book Luck of the Draw talks about how his feet got frozen to the pedal on one m- mission uh, unbelievably painful but he still was able to get the plane down um, so I can't imagine there's no toilets on these airplanes they're breathing oxygen if the oxygen mask would freeze up um Unbelievable sacrifices. What else you want to say, Mike?
0: Well, I would just say that, yeah, my dad talked about electrical flying suits that they'd have to plug in that were like a heating blanket. You know, right. You'd plug them in, and that was supposed to keep you warm. But if something happened, and especially if, if the airplane took damage and it cut some of the electric lines, yeah, Dave, Dave's right. People freeze to death. I mean, it's twenty six to 30,000 feet. There's no hope for when there's no pressurization. I mean, you're done
2: yeah all
1: right mike we're done too thanks Thanks buddy appreciate it so if your father didn't talk at all about the war how did you find out all these details about him
2: well the books uh harry crosby's book is uh, probably what i call it the foundation book uh his book was so well received and so well written that this harry crosby who is my father's navigator remember his book became the foundation for other books that were written about the air war in Europe. You know, Masters of the Air. There's a lot of Harry Crosby in that book. Edward Jablonski's uh, Flying Fortress Were series. you
1: surprised to read about your dad? Was, did you recognize your dad in these pages?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. So, my dad was a real hero. Okay. That's <laughs> all right. It's okay. So, um,
1: Dads are special.
2: He was. And so, um, reading the books, and then getting an interest, and in I and I didn't until I kind of retired and got a had some time and really started digging more into it. I have a brother, as I said, Jim, who has just been at this way longer than I have. And there's a group, uh, the Hundredth Bomb Group Foundation. Um, and they got a wonderful web page. If you're interested in finding more information about this, or you have a father or some relative that was in the 100th, you can go there and search, and they have a, a huge archive of information. Was it called the Bloody 100th? The Bloody 100th, and it was the nickname they got. Uh, but they really they didn't take any more losses than any other bomber group in World War too. There was some that even took more, but they became known as the Bloody 100th and had a reputation. They had the probably the most characters, and the the <laughs> TV series is going to accent those characters and some of the things that they did, and, and that makes it all that makes better television.
1: Did your brother think it was accurate based upon what he saw?
2: He told me <clears throat> he, sa- he said he um, said Dave, don't spend your time trying to find all the mistakes <laughs> that were done in the movie. Uh, because you'll, you won't enjoy it as much. And so, you know, I have to keep in mind, and I think we all have to keep, it's a story Dave. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, not a documentary. It's not based in facts. They need to make an interesting story. So they're gonna be a little loose with some of the truth. I understand it's very, very, very accurate on most cases. You know, the yeah. scenes, the planes, the interiors, the life, the what they had to do is very, very accurate, but, you know, if you study the 100th Bomb Group, you know all the things that happen.
1: All right. This is what's going to happen here. We're off to California headline news and ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with time-saver traffic and weather together. We'll continue our conversation with David Blakely about his dad, Everett Blakely, and this brand-new Apple TV series called Masters of the Air. This is Hometown Radio. Tomorrow, more chances to win free tickets to the Happy Together Tour at Vina Robles. Uh, Also, as promised, my brother Bruce, a man of devout religious faith, will explain to me why evangelicals love Donald Trump. That should be interesting. Uh, Still to come on today's broadcast, uh, Slow County Physician of the Year, neurosurgeon extraordinaire, Dr. Philip Kissel will be with us. We're joined this hour by former County Supervisor David Blakely, Although we're not really here to talk with uh, David, we're here to talk about his father, the late Everett Blakely, uh, featured in this new uh, TV series, Masters of the Air, about uh, the experience of all these young men who, obviously, David, had to grow up qu- grow up quickly.
2: It's amazing, Dave, when you think about it. The average age of a pilot during World War II is 21, 22 years old. Yeah. Uh, my father was 24, so he was on the older side. Um, and uh, they're in charge of an airplane uh, with a 10 crew. people and a crew and they're going into the jaws of death and it's amazing to me that uh, they had the courage and the intelligence and the skills to go do such a thing.
1: And then to keep doing it even though they oh. had some sense what was waiting for them.
2: It, yeah, the burden that they had to live with had to be overwhelming and there's a lot of research and stuff. Donald Miller, once again, in a chapter of his book, Master of the Air, gets into the psychological issues uh, that a lot of the airmen had after flying these missions. Yeah, Well, there's a reason
1: we consider them to be the greatest generation.
2: Yes, they were. Amazing. All right. So you did some
1: research. Share with us some of the exploits, some of the missions that your dad went on.
2: Well, uh, there's three probably most notable. The first... First of all, let's back up a second about sure. why did they choose the missions that they chose, okay. and uh, when the war got started. Remember, World War Two got started in 1939 when the Germans invaded, you know, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and on and on. And it wasn't so. They're in 39, September 39. The war gets going. England's involved, and it's not till 1941. A year later, the Japanese bomb us at Pearl Harbor, we get in, but we really don't start fighting in the war until North Africa, which is a year later. So a year after, in November of 42, and it's not until June of 43 that the bombers uh, are over in England ready to go into action, and because this B-17 was such a radical new weapon, They really didn't know what it was capable of doing and how the crews could handle it, what the plane could do. So they needed to figure that out. Also early in the war effort the north atlantic became a very important battleground over eighty thousand merchant marines lost their lives bringing materials from the united states over to great britain so great britain could fight continue to fight the war Hmm. so winston churchill basically said we must gain control of the north atlantic or we just can't exist because we need the supplies coming from the United States. So the U-boats, the German U-boats, were wrecking havoc on the merchant marines. So Winston Churchill successfully lobbied the American establishment to direct the first missions of the bomber command against the submarine infrastructure. So for a couple of reasons, the bases that were along the north coast of England and the north coast of Germany and the up in Norway were the targets that the B-17s attacked first. Mm. For one reason, we needed to get control of the North Atlantic. And number two, they didn't know what the airplane could do, and these bases were just across the English Channel, and then they could do their bombing mission. They didn't have to worry about too much flack, and they could get back to home easily, and they could figure out what these airplanes were uh could do. So most of the early missions are going to be against submarine pins and submarine infrastructure. And then there's a, an important one to Trondheim, Norway, where they had submarines but also chemical plants. And I believe the other reason that they went on this mission was it was a long mission. It was over 1,000 miles away. The range of a B-17 is 2,000 miles. And they wanted to see what the B-17s could do in long distances. And They're flying over the water, so they can fly at low altitude, save oxygen. They don't have uh, flat guns going off. They didn't have to worry about the Luftwaffe. And so uh, they did an important mission to Trondheim, Norway, with a very successful. My father received the Distinguished Flying Cross uh, as a result of his action on that day. So that was a big mission. The next big mission that was probably the most famous air battle of World War II was the Schweinfurt-Regensburg mission. This was called Operation Double Strike. And this was the furthest penetration into Germany to date. And it was led... By Curtis Lemay. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah so yeah.
2: Curtis Lemay, I have pictures of Curtis Lemay <laughs> pinning medals on my father. Curtis Lemay was this the commander of the Third Air Division before he went to Burma, before he went over to start firebombing Japan, before the Chief of Staff, before he became Vice President with George Wallace. Yeah. So. Curtis LeMay was uh, also beloved by his men as, a, as an excellent leader. So what they were going to do, there were two targets. They had the first Division and the 4th Division flying out of England. The 3rd Division was going to fly to Regensburg and bomb some uh, Messerschmitt factory. And uh, the goal was that we knew we had to get control of the air, we had to stop the air, or we couldn't do D-Day. So Eisenhower's making it a priority that we're going to bomb the the military air force infrastructure so that there's not going to be any German airplanes flying when the Allies land on D-Day, and there weren't. So um, they're going to bomb that, and then they're going to go fly over the Alps to North Africa. So there's scenes of this in Masters of the Air, I've seen it in the previews. So the first time they're going to actually go one way, and the thinking is, well, they go one way, then they don't get hit from the Luftwaffe going and coming. Well, the theory was this group is going to go off to bomb Regensburg, and then the 4th Division is going to leave 20 minutes later and bomb Schweifert, the ball-bearing factories, because they thought that if we knock out the ball-bearing factories, they have nothing to use to build any mechanical thing in the war. Tanks, jeeps, everything needs ball-bearings. They were wrong about that, but that was what they thought at the time. So the weather got bad. And LeMay, my father's commander, had drilled his pilots to fly in crummy weather. Hundreds of hours getting training, flying in the weather, getting organized. Imagine getting 200 planes up in the air and getting organized for a mission across uh, the North Atlantic there. Or not the North Atlantic, across the English Channel. Well, the second group was delayed because the weather was crummy. And so it was two, three hours later before they took off. So the Luftwaffe had time to shoot up my dad's group, land, refuel, rearm, come back up in the air. And those guys took it really, really hard. Uh, awful uh, losses as they returned, uh, went and returned across Germany. What were we saying earlier it was 50% chance of. 50%. And it was worse in the early missions, because uh, this is a whole other important topic of discussion, the P-47 versus the P-51 and the P-38. But basically the P-47 and P-51, and another very important part of the upcoming TV series is going to be... uh, the African American pilots and their contribution to the B17 efforts. So what did all what difference did all this make at the end of the day? What did
1: the masters of the air accomplish in terms of the war effort? Okay,
2: the great question. Well, so the America military is a huge bureaucracy that keeps impeccable records, which so there's wonderful uh, statistics on how successful the bombing missions were, whether bombing the ball-bearing factories in effect had any effect, should we have bombed the oil refineries. And so at the end of the war, the Air Force commissioned a huge 12-volume work. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith was one of the authors of this mm. book where they looked at – the effectiveness of the bomber command. What did, did we really achieve? Yeah. You know, was it successful or was it a waste of life and money and resources? And the results are mixed. Um, the most important things that we were successful in doing was bombing the uh, petroleum infrastructure. That had probably the most significant impact. Bombing the transportation network was also a very important, successful uh, component of the strategy. Bombing the ball-bearing factories really didn't do much, Hmm. because the Germans had a big uh, backlog of supply, and then they were able to buy them from the Swedes and the Swiss, You know, Mm -hmm. so people are still doing business there. You know, people say Switzerland was neutral in the war. They may have technically been neutral, but they very closely were more aligned with Germany than people will give them credit for. So they were selling a lot of stuff. To the German war effort, so that was not very successful. Uh, there also wasn't successful the uh, thought that the British were doing the daylight bombing, uh, the nighttime bombing raids. The Americans were doing the daylight bombing raids. Because of that, the Air Force, Americans took way more casualties. But we had this. I, I'm going to describe it as a moralistic value about war. There was thinking at this Air Force Tactical School among the bomber mafia that. We didn't have to repeat the sins of World War I where millions of people just got shot down moving from trench to trench to gain 10 yards of ground that was worthless. So they thought we don't have to go have those kind of loss because we have the Norden bomb site which supposedly was going to make it more accurate for us to hit targets and they developed what became known as the industrial web theory and the industrial web theory says if we bomb the infrastructure that is supplying the war effort we can bring them to uh, defeat quicker so if we bomb the factory making measurements we bomb the factory making the tanks we bomb the factory that is producing the ammunition we can knock those out, we don't have to kill a million of people, but we knock those out and the war will get over quicker. Uh, The British, who were subject to the Battle of Britain and the Luftwaffe coming in and bombing uh, civilians in Great Britain, the British said, the heck with it, we're just going to carpet bomb cities. And so they were doing that during the day. The Americans were doing these targeted bombing missions on these industrial targets at the end of the war this is going to change you know we have dresden cologne other targets where the americans are participating in what i would describe some civilian losses because they thought that this would break the morale of the germans and bring the war over quicker and that was not successful their morale was not crippled there was some effect but it wasn't the effect that they wanted to have.
1: All right, we're in conversation with David Blakely, previewing the upcoming Apple TV series, Masters of the Air. It starts on January 26th, and one of the characters in this true story happens to be his dad, the late Everett Blakely. We'll come back for a final segment right here on Hometown Radio. All right, we're in our final segment with David Blakely talking about his father, Everett Blakely, who served during World War II. And this whole uh, bomber squadron is going to be the subject of this new Steven Spielberg-Tom Hanks series called Masters of the Air. Debuts January 26th on Apple TV. How do people find out? About their parents in World War II?
2: Well, it's, it's so, become so interesting to me, Dave. It's a wonderful hobby. Um, those of you listeners who have been working on their family history uh, know the experience of doing this kind of research into family members. But if you've got a, a relative that was in World War II and you're curious about it, it's going to be a lot of fun if you just dig into uh, that family member. Not only will you learn about him or her but you'll also just learn a lot about the history of world war ii and american uh, political issues that were going on during that era and how they influenced the war effort and just the general politics and the social stuff, the changes that were going on during that period of time. But just by finding out information about your relatives, there's tons of resources. Uh, almost every one of the bomber groups has some kind of a web presence. And some of the groups have done a better job than others in terms of collecting uh, information and making it easily accessible. The 100th Bomb Group has done a, a great job of Why are doing they that. the
1: bloody 100th?
2: Well, okay. There's a legend, and, and I wasn't going to repeat it, but you're prying it out of me right, because right. it's not true. But I'm going to, I'm going to, okay. I'm going to tell the lie here. Right. So the lie is that uh, when you were a bomber, uh, flying a bomber, and the Luftwaffe had shot you up pretty bad, and you're disabled, if you dropped your landing gear, that was like waving the white flag in the sky, right? So if you were in a bomber and you were shot up and you were going to have to force to land, you drop your landing gear, then they would escort you down. Well, the legend has it that there was one of the planes in the 100th Bomb Group that dropped their landing gear. The German fighters came in to escort them down, and the airplane shot up the Germans. Not good. Um, Pretty uh, un... un uh, Unprofessional. Unprofessional. Yeah. Yeah. And the research shows that this did not really happen, has never happened. Uh, So the legend was, because this allegedly happened, the airplanes were identified. My father's 100th Bomb Group had a square D on its tail. Uh, Other groups had square A's, B's. There was the triangles uh, that identified the group. So the 100th bomb group could be easily picked out by the German as the square D. And so it was said that because they had the square D and they were targeted by the Germans, their loss rate was greater. Hmm. And uh, this was kind of a legend that had a little bit of life until it's now been disproven. But, uh, you know, all of the groups uh, had kind of nicknames, and the Bloody 100th is the nickname that was given to the 100th Bomb Group. There's a
1: foundation?
2: There is a foundation. Very active. Uh, every couple of years they have uh, reunions. I've, I've been to a couple. Uh, you, you can make contacts. I meet the children of people that were on the crew of my dad's plane. Uh, they're informative. They have this website. Uh, Thorpe Abbott. Was the airbase that my father flew out of in England? And uh, Thorpe Abbott has now established a museum. They've restored the airbase there. They have a museum. They just received a big honor from Queen Elizabeth before she passed away. Um, and uh, last year I took my grandchildren over there to see it. And it was pretty remarkable. And they also have a website with a lot of good information about the 100th Bomb Group. Um, if you're father or mother were in the uh, 8th Air Force, you can go to Montgomery, Alabama, to uh, the air base there, and they have the uh, Air Force archives. I mean, like I say, Dave, I spent four days looking at you know, things from the menus of what they were serving in the mess hall that day oh. to who was in sick bay. I found some things. My father was uh, sent to London to do some work, and that was in one of the documents. And they have the mission reports, you know, what did, where did you see the flack? Uh, how many bullet holes were in your plane, did you lose any crew members, were you successful on the target, all of that information. The primary, you, you can actually touch the documents that were written by the 100th Bomb Group in World War II. I spent four days, I scanned about 1,200 documents then. Wow that I now have posted up on the Internet uh, archives for anybody else who wants to get those primary sources. Uh, There's also a couple of other museums in Cleveland, Ohio, and Kansas City, Missouri. There's all called the National Archives are available with information. And there's tons of wonderful books that have been written about uh, the military in World War II. So does all this make you see your dad in a different light? I always knew my dad was a great guy. Yeah. You know, but um, I guess it helped me understand a little bit more about the sacrifices not only my father, but thousands of other uh, people made, not only in the air, but on the ground, to beat back Hitler. He's the one evil dude.
1: It was disappointing to me that it took us so long to put up a World War II memorial so that by the time we got it built, most of the people who went through World War II were gone.
2: Yeah. You know, it's uh, remarkable to me what uh, the people on the land, sea, and in the air did to successfully beat back uh, what was happening in World War II. And it's just remarkable, the courage, the heroism, the teamwork, uh, everything uh, that these people did, so that you and I can sit here and talk on the radio today in English. Absolutely. So what happened to your dad after the war? Well, so after the war, my father, before the war, was a Latin American studies uh, student at the University of Washington, I don't know why. And then he enlisted, went into the ROTC, started training. Roosevelt was very smart about knowing the Air Force had to get up to speed. And then he flew in World War II. He stayed in the Air Force. And they sent him under the GI Bill. He went back and finished his degree. And then they sent him up to Monterey to the Language Institute where he learned Spanish. Hmm. And so now that he learned Spanish, they sent him to Cali, Colombia, where I was born, um, in, uh, 1949, 1950 to be a liaison and a training person to the Colombian Air Force. Back in the 50s, we weren't worried about the drug trade coming out of Colombia. It was about the communists, you know, (laughs) coming in and establishing relationships. So my father was a training officer and I think somewhat of a political liaison to the Colombians to make sure that we had some relationships with them. So he was there and then uh, different uh, tours in the United States. One of his favorites was doing ROTC at the University of Notre Dame where he was for five years, uh, worked with Father Hesburgh and uh, doing the Air Force ROTC there. And then, uh, you know, a couple tours in the Philippines, which was fun as a kid. I went to five high schools growing up, Dave. We moved all over the place. Uh, France and Germany, uh, Philippines, uh, Indiana. And uh, ultimately, he retired uh, with 26 years in, went to work for Lockheed down in Burbank, and then eventually him and my mom in 1988 moved up here to San Luis Obispo. And he's and buried here. Buried at the old Mission Cemetery. Passed away in 2004. But
1: your mom's still alive. Oh, she's a gift.
2: <laughs> she is a gift. Dave, 101 years old. She lives at the villages. She still gets up every morning, gets herself dressed, goes to breakfast. Plays cards, is still as sharp as a tack. Uh, Just the nicest, neatest, inspirational person you ever want to know.
1: As uh, David Blakely puts together a final thought, I remind you that the series debuts on Apple TV January 26th. It's called Masters of the Air. Produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. You can Google Everett Blakely and more information will come up. David, thanks so much for coming in and sharing the story with us. Uh, I've got about 40 seconds for a final thought, sir.
2: Uh, Yeah, Buy Apple TV. Let's support them because they're supporting this broadcast. It should be a great entertainment, especially if you're a World War II buff. It's a good story, the friendship between these uh, two guys. And uh, I think you'll appreciate the sacrifices that the air crews made a little bit more after watching this series.
1: And if you have any veterans in your family, regardless of the war, go talk to them and see if they'll tell you their stories.
2: It's going to get harder if they pass away. Let me tell you, I wish I had my dad sitting next to me could answer a lot of questions that I now have about his service.
1: All right, David. Thank you. Off we go. We got news and traffic and weather. Dr. Phil Kissel is in the house. I'd stick around. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show.